Welcome to the Sex, God, and Chaos podcast, a conversation built to help you address the mess, connect the dots, and defeat addiction. Doing your work matters because if nothing changes, then nothing changes. Life is tough and we're here to help. I'm your host, Ben Derrick, and as always, I'll be joined by Roan Hunter. Let's jump right in. Roan, how in the world are you? Man, I, uh, you know, Eva asked me that, and I always said, I have to think about it. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, that shows you're not a Baptist because you would automatically have, fine. Man, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm (laughs) I'm good. Good. Better than I deserve. That's the one that drives me the most. Oh, don't you love it? Crazy. (laughs) Better than I deserve. So, look, it's always fun to spend time with you in the podcast studio, and we're getting so much feedback about how helpful these episodes are which is completely wild because you don't know what you're talking about. No. But the, the way we've solved Make it that, up as I go. That's right. Yeah. The way we've solved that is to bring other people into the studio. And what our listeners are going to hear today, look, we have to be honest about this. We are in an interview posture, and for at least 21 straight minutes, we're staring at each other in the studio in disbelief because we are hearing Nate Larkin's story. Dude, it it was it was uh, I've heard Nate's story. Me too. Uh, I've, I've read his book, yeah. and I know the story. But it it was riveting. I mean, you you said that it, it just it, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm eager for them Powerful. to be able to hear it. Yeah, just the power in that, but just the the settled nature with which he delivers things, just honest things. And the the part that struck me, and I, you know, we don't want to spoil the episode right here at the beginning. Uh, but that some of his life just felt predetermined. I've really felt that way looking back over my story. Have you? Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. I think we all have in some ways. And, boy, he just does a great job of kind of articulating that uh, part of his life. Yeah, when he's telling a story, there's some moments of silence in there, just as a fair warning. But during that silence, I was thinking, oh, thank God, I've got to think about what he just said for the past four or five mm, minutes. Truth. He gives that pause, I think, and he's just such a, a masterful storyteller. And that's an art, I think, that's dying in our culture. And especially as we're discussing sexual things and religious things, the storytelling seems to be dying. And man, this guy is a rare breed, isn't he? He is. And uh, gotten to know Nate. And, you know, the great thing about Nate is, he is one of us, man. Oh, he's yeah. just he, he's uh, he, he's just authentic. He's real, and and certainly gets this whole idea of doing life together. Absolutely. So, without further delay, we give you our conversation with Nate Larkin. Uh, we have a good friend of ours, Nate Larkin, uh, who's known predominantly for his work with the Samson Society, but his own story pretty incredible. Nate, we're so glad that you're you're with us today. Oh, it's an honor. It's a joy. Uh, thanks so much for inviting. This is great. Yeah, so we're eager to have this conversation uh, just to kind of peel back the layers a little bit of your own story, which is out there very public. But just for our, our audience, it would be cool if we could uh, start with a little bit of that. Like, what's gotten you here? Oh, man. Well, yeah, it's a, a thumbnail, I guess. Thumbnail version of the story is, you know, I grew up in church. Dad was a preacher. Uh, I was destined for the ministry from the time I was a little kid uh, because, you know, I had the requisite skills for success in church. So I had a great memory. Uh, I had a good singing voice. I sincerely loved God. Uh, and 
as I understood it, the only way to be a five-star Christian, really, uh, if you're going to excel, if you're going to be in the Marines of the church, then you had to be, uh, you had to go into ministry and be a pastor. And, and I was, you know, that's where I was headed from the, as my earliest memory. Hey, uh, nobody talked about, we didn't talk about sex at all when I was growing up. That was a taboo subject, which in itself sent a very strong message. I got the message early on that whatever this was, it's not something you ever talk about. Mm. Uh, and nobody ever warned me about porn. No, nobody told me that, uh, you know, every boy eventually sees porn. Or every boy instinctively likes porn because it depicts something that we're wired by God to want. Uh, I was just taken completely by surprise. My first look shortly after my mother died. Uh, so by the way, that really, you know, set me up for addiction, that and other, you know, trauma around early childhood, that vision, uh, playboy, you know, magazine vision of the naked woman just, you know, hit me deep. I knew it was bad, but I didn't know why it was bad. And today, you know, crazy enough, we actually have to make the case that porn is, uh, you know, destructive. I was ashamed of having seen it, ashamed of having liked it. And uh, so I hid very, very successfully. Nobody suspected that sweet little, you know, St. Nate Larkin, this wonderful good kid, the, you know, the leader of the church youth group, the public Christian in the public school could possibly be uh, developing a porn problem. So I kept that secret, uh, you know, all through high school and uh, into college where naturally I migrated to leadership of the College Christian Fellowship. Um, by then, I would stopped. I decided that I, I needed to stop feeling guilty about it, that really I needed to get into uh, the 20th century um, I need to escape this crazy moralism. I, I needed sex education. What better place to get it than porn, I thought. Um, and it was a temporary thing. I knew that, uh, you know, I, I viewed porn as preparation for marriage, uh, unaware that I was actually poisoning my marriage, uh, allowing pornography to create expectations for marriage that no woman on the planet would ever fulfill. So I uh, met a wonderful woman, uh, <laughs> married her the day I graduated from college, uh, expecting now that my porn problems were over, <laughs> absolutely surprised and devastated when the problem not only didn't disappear, it actually metastasized. It got worse in seminary. I headed on to Princeton Seminary and there on a seminary-sponsored trip to New York City on a tour of Times Square intended to show us how women are exploited by the sex business. I got my first look at hardcore porn. Up until then, I'd, I'd subsisted on softcore stuff, glossy magazines. I saw, you know, the kind of stuff that any unsupervised five-year-old can find a day in two minutes on the internet, I saw for the first time as a married man. And, uh, and even though it disgusted me, uh, it also fascinated me and hooked me immediately, very, very deep. So, you know, 
within days of that first exposure, I found myself slipping away from seminary and from home. Uh, and by now, we've got three kids um, and drifting off into Trenton, New Jersey, <laughs> in search of a source for my new drug because, baby, I had found my drug. I was unaware that uh, my porn use was actually altering my brain, um, changing the brain. We now know in the same way that cocaine does. We can actually see it on brain scans. My wife, all she saw was she saw me drifting away from her emotionally. Um, she saw changes in behavior, changes in – we definitely were uh, – we were going in the wrong direction. And Allie thought that it was probably her fault. Um, and that seemed like a good explanation to me. Mm. At that point, I went with that. Uh, although still struggled. Uh, I didn't, you know, <laughs> so many times, you know, I would, my car would drive itself to the adult bookstore. And I'd come out just, disgusted and resolved, you know, that was a bad decision and I'm never going to do that again. I was able to muster the determination from time to time to white knuckle my way to what I thought was sobriety. It was really just, you know, abstinence. It was during one period of abstinence that uh, I found the nerve. By now we're in South Florida. And I found the courage to start a church, really, to, you know, to fulfill the family destiny. So I started a church in South Florida. We quickly had 100 people. And then as those stresses mounted, I, you know, I was back into my accustomed stress management strategy. Back in the soup, uh, I was always very careful. I was never caught. Uh, I lasted in the ministry for five years. And it was about three and a half years in that things got even worse. That's when I picked up my first hooker uh, on, a, on a Christmas Eve, on my way to set up for a candlelight service on Christmas Eve in Fort Lauderdale. That was, an, that was just an awful, awful experience. And uh, I remember that night begging God. Promising him I'd never do it again, promising myself, knowing at the same time, though, that, uh, that I would. I just knew I would. And I did over and over again, always careful, never caught. But uh, this was a time when very prominent uh, preachers were all over the news with sex scandals. Now, I wasn't famous, but I was building a good reputation in South Florida. And I knew that the story was juicy enough that when they caught me, I'd make the paper, you know, probably the first page, maybe above the fold. And to me, that was the most terrifying prospect I could imagine that other people would actually know how messed up I am. Uh, so, uh, I woke up on my 30th birthday knowing that something had to change. I either had to stop this behavior or uh, quit the ministry. And at that point, there was only one thing I could do. So I, I retired from ministry at the ripe age of 30. Went into business um, where I had the great misfortune to succeed. And uh, so now I had uh, a lot more money than I'd ever 
made in the ministry with even less accountability. So what followed then was a very dark dozen years. Uh, I, I, I wasted untold amounts of money. I added it up later. It's at least $300,000, I think, that I burned on porn and prostitutes. Um, the worst part is that uh, I spent my children's childhood. Uh, I spent in all 20 years of my wife's life and 20 years of mine in this cycle, uh, you know, trading my birthright day after day for a bowl of beans. It was uh, 1998 when uh, we got a phone call from our oldest, who by then was uh, married. Uh, his wife called to say they were expecting our first grandchild. They had moved to Middle Tennessee, and they wondered whether we would move there to be close to the to the baby. Allie, my wife, who by this point was in really clinical depression, and nobody could understand why. Allie said, I want to go. And to me, it seemed like an opportunity for the geographic cure. Maybe if I get out of South Florida, this will work. So we moved to Tennessee, and it was shortly thereafter that um, Allie discovered me late one night downloading porn in the office. And um, that was a tough night. That was a tough night. She forgave me, though. But, you know, a few weeks later, <laughs> a few weeks later, uh, she found a condom on the floor in the bathroom that I couldn't quite explain. And that's when she said, and I'll never forget these words. She sat me down on the edge of our bed and she said, I still love you, but I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't respect you. And I don't think you can ever change. Uh, that's what it took for me. You know, they say that four out of five guys who seek help for sexually compulsive behavior only do so after receiving an ultimatum from a wife or a girlfriend. I'm definitely one of the four. So now for the first time, I had the motivation to do something I'd never done before, which is actually go for help. I kind of gone for help in surreptitious ways early, earlier, uh, but I'd always spoken in code. I'd never come right out and told somebody what I was actually doing. Because to me, the price was too high. Uh, you know, I would certainly lose my status in church because even though I'd left the ministry, I was always active in church, always in leadership, whether it was teaching Sunday school or, you know, participating in the worship team or filling in for the preacher. I loved church. Yeah, it was it was tough uh, each Sunday to, you know, fight my way to the foot of the cross and beg God's forgiveness and and then kind of get this assurance of pardon and then rally my resolution to, you know. <laughs> try harder and do better. Uh, I loved church. But, uh, and I, so I had this feeling that if I actually came out and said how bad it was, you know, I'd be given the left foot of fellowship. I'd be out the door. And I had, I had good reason to believe that because I had seen what had happened to other guys who had taken our rhetoric about grace at face value. And I, ironically, I had even participated in uh, the disciplining and expulsion of some of those guys. Me, uh, even if I wasn't throwing the stones, I was holding the coats. So anyway, um, so I didn't go to church for help. Uh, I didn't go to my pastor. Uh, I'd been a pastor, didn't trust pastors. 
Uh, I didn't even go to a therapist because at that point I didn't have any money left. Instead, uh, I went to a 12-step meeting. It took me two weeks to actually get through the door. And I actually only went in because while sitting in my car outside, I saw a guy I recognized walk into the meeting. He was just, he was a guy from church, a guy who I had heard speak up sometimes in men's Bible studies. And there was something different about this guy, something I liked. He just seemed comfortable in his own skin, very clear that he loved God, didn't seem like he needed to impress anybody. But here's the most striking thing about him. This guy talked about his sin in the present tense. Uh, he was joyous and shame, you know, shame-free. <laughs> and that was magnetic. I, I followed him inside. And, and what I found there started the process that changed my life. Um, I was a slow learner, though. I was slow to uh, join the church, uh, join the group emotionally. I wanted to attend. I wanted to be a spectator. I really thought at that point that I had an information problem. Uh, I've been searching for years for the final piece of the puzzle, you know, the, the key insight, the principle, the, the formula, whatever it was that would allow me finally to gain mastery over this compulsion myself. And I thought that perhaps here I had found the people who had the secret information. Uh, I was determined to uh, master the material quickly. I've always been a good student. I was going <laughs> to set the land speed record for recovery and, uh, and, and get the diploma or the green jacket or the trophy or whatever it is they give you and then leave this whole sad chapter of my life behind. That was my plan. And it didn't work very well. I was a champion slipper during the first couple of years. I could never put together much, any consistent... Uh, well, I didn't even know what sobriety was at that point. All I knew was painful abstinence. Uh, until finally, you know, I made the decision just to become another bozo on the bus, just to join the human race, just to drop the whole act and ask for help. And, um, you know, it, it was, uh, and that's where things really began to change for me. Miraculously, my marriage survived. We had a rocky few years. I slept in the closet for a couple of years, as a matter of fact. But Allie eventually uh, began to believe that even though I had, you know, I'd never been a guy to follow through. I'd made countless promises that I'd never fulfilled. I'd turned over so many new leaves. You know, she was very skeptical at the outset that this would actually work. Uh, she didn't think I would stick to it. To be honest, I didn't think I would stick to it. But uh, it stuck to me. It was there in relationship, in honest relationship, shame-free, honest, deep connection with other men, non-sexual intimacy, where I had fresh encounter with my higher power. And, uh, and mysteriously, uh, almost magically, wonderfully, some of those deep changes that I had tried for years on my own to bring about just began to happen on their own. And, and Allie slowly began to trust them. And, uh, you know, today, we're actually grateful for that whole experience. If it hadn't been for addiction, I wouldn't have gotten into recovery. Wouldn't have been able to 
to get to some of the deep work. <laughs> By the way, I wasn't interested in doing deep work when I first showed up. I was interested in stopping this behavior. And I thought that was the problem. I was shocked when my first sponsor said, Nate, your biggest problem is you think sex is your problem. And that, that made no sense to me. He said, <laughs> he said, well, it's a problem. It's a big problem. You have to stop what you're doing. You can't stop on your own. God's going to have to do it. And he's probably going to use us in the process. But if you think that just stopping that behavior is going to fix you or make you happy, you are crazy. Um, he said, if anything, if you somehow manage to control that behavior, all on your own, and nothing else changes, you're going to be more miserable and more miserable to be around than you are today because sex is not your problem. He said, sex is your favorite solution. It is the medication that you have been using all these years to numb the pain caused by your deeper problems, which, by the way, are common to man. He said, you have a lot more repenting and a lot more healing to do than you know. It was. Uh, I'm so grateful for the whole experience. And even though, you know, the 12-step groups where I got sober were not Christian, the, the effect on my spiritual life was profound. I, I was really resuscitated. And sometimes I almost think reborn <laughs> as a Christian. Mm. God became real to me in a way he'd never been real before. And um, as time went on, uh, I really wanted to be able to uh, integrate my growing Christian faith with my recovery experience and to do so explicitly. So six years in, uh, by then, uh, I had lost, I was no longer ashamed of uh, my addiction, was just grateful to be free and willing to share with anybody else. I had learned by that point that service is key to ongoing sobriety. So I was walking with about a dozen guys and at the invitation of my, a suggestion of my wife, actually, uh, we got together and we started a, a group for Christian guys called the Samson Society, a group not exclusively for uh, guys with porn addiction, not more with sex, uh, sex addiction. Uh, you know, porn addiction is a plus. It's an advantage, but not a requirement for a membership in Samson. We've got guys now in Samson who come for all kinds of reasons. Uh, but we made a commitment that we're going to walk together in transparency and honesty. We're going to bear one another's burdens. We're going to confess our sins one to another and pray for one another. Um, and it's a Astonishing what happens when we change our strategy, when we finally realize that Christianity is a team sport, not an individual event. We could never won, never win this one-on-one -on -one game against you know, this ancient enemy of ours and instead follow Jesus together the way he intended. He came to reconstitute the family of God. He came to reconcile us to God and to each other. Turns out the opposite, the opposite of, of addiction is connection. And, uh, and it's in connection with God and with each other that life becomes full and freedom flourishes. So that's what Samson Society is about. That's the, the one message I'm 
passionate about. That's the one string I play on wherever I go. <laughs> Man, I tell you, listening to your story, you can you can feel that. And I know the people tuning into this episode just feel honored just to hear a man's story with that level of, of rigorous uh, honesty. And I, I know you have a lot of practice with this, but mm-hmm. specifically the the conversation that we've started with this podcast, your story just plays right into that because um, Sex, God, and Chaos, I think, pretty much summarizes the story that you just told. And mm-hmm. there's so much stuff in there. I'd like to roll back, if we could, just to kick into some Q&A about. Yeah. Um, interesting that you started with naming two things, a secrecy and shame around mm-hmm. sex. And there are so many people listening to this podcast, not everyone, but so many people that have a faith background or some sort of faith base. And and assuming that the institution is going to handle all the information about those things. But for you, your faith put you in this huge uh, place of conflict because of the secrecy and the yeah. shame, right? That was a big part of the cocktail. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and it was made worse by the fact that I was destined for the clergy, for the ministry. Uh, because, but I don't know, we somehow kind of had this idea that, you know, a pastor is neither male nor female. You know, he's, he's just kind of some strange gender who's completely safe. Um, that, yeah. That, right. Uh, that's what messed with me in high school, because in high school, everybody knew I was going to be a pastor. So no girl wanted to date me, right? They came to me for counseling when they had trouble with their boyfriends. Um, and I kind of had this. Uh, so, 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 you know, I talk about, talk about conflict. I know what I'm doing secretly. I know what I'm thinking when I'm talking so earnestly and openly and safely with this beautiful one girl, a young girl who has no interest in me. Uh, and I feel such shame about it all at the same time. And, you know, for years, I thought that I could shame my way out of shame-based behavior. Mm. The strategies that I employed during those years when I, when I did, you know, I, I toyed with what we called accountability back then. But it was all shame-based. It was based on this presumption. If you lock yourself in, by contract into a relationship with uh, some other guys and you're going to tell the truth to each other and um, because you know you have to tell the truth, the prospect of having to admit something shameful will prevent you from doing the shameful thing. That was the theory. So. Um, you know, after some men's conference, I'd navigate next to a few other guys and, you know, talk vaguely in evangelical code about, you know, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, you know, and then really pretend that probably anger was my bigger issue. And then uh, we'd make this contract that we would get together weekly and we'd ask each other the tough questions. Well, by the second week, I was always lying. Mm. <laughs> I mean, but the yeah. whole arrangement was built on this insane assumption, by the way, that I can hold it together on my own for an entire week. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I never let, because I didn't want to lose status in the group, um, I never let, and, and, and if a guy did admit a, a failure, then instantly all the attention turned on him, and then we all became fixers. 
And, uh, you know, it just, I don't know, it was messed up. So it's kind of sad that um, I had to find my way to recovery and sobriety outside the church. I, it was actually, you know, those meetings were held in the church basement in the middle of the week while all the good people were gone. Uh, but, That's uh, some uh, of your story too, isn't it? Right? You talk about the basement with the one light bulb. Oh, yeah. Nate, I always talk about, you know, those those early groups and being a yeah. part of that. It's like, you know, they always put us in the basement. It's it's like in the mechanical room with the, yeah. with the oh, metal yeah. folding chairs and the naked light bulb and leaky pipes. And yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. not that we, you know, we're not dealing with shame. And, and that's just so helpful, right? Like we, you go in the back door and yeah, you go yeah. to the bowels of the building. That's yeah. where you'll find it. That, yeah, that, that's where we, where we would always meet. That's yeah. right. But you know, our view for the Samson Society is for Samson to be a safe place right in the middle of the church for any man to bring his real self and say the real truth. And it's a shame-free environment. Here's what I believe. You know, as Christians, we focus a lot, especially at Easter time, on how the blood of Jesus was shed for our guilt. Jesus died for our guilt, and that is true. But that is only part of the story. Uh, he died a painful, bloody death for our guilt. But in that death, the shame was even greater than the pain. To be stripped naked, beaten, and then paraded naked through the city. And then hoisted high in the air, spread eagle, facing the city, naked. Jesus deliberately chose not just the most painful death, but the most shameful death available. Because he was dying for our shame. Mm. You know, it's interesting. You know, it's like every time I hear your story and, you know, read, read, reading the book and uh, <laughs> it's like, man, eh, yeah, Nate told my story, right? Yeah. And, you know, the, the the big difference is, you know, I didn't grow up in any kind of Christian home, but was exposed, you know, pornography uh, came into my life around eight or nine, uh, around eight years old. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it, in, in my mother's attitude, you know, boys will be boys. I mean, we had porn on the bedside table uh, growing up. Sure. Um, and what's interesting is like, man, I felt that shame. Wow. Uh, it, it, uh, just without any kind of God influence. Uh, mm. I, I just think there's a, there's a shame factor that goes along with our sexuality. Um, and I think it's certainly the God stamp on everybody's life, whether you yeah. know Jesus or nothing. Uh, it's just there. And mm. I always say, I, I, I think when we read Scripture, we ought to just put, wherever we see Satan or devil or Beelzebub or whatever, we just need to put the word shame in there because if it is not him, it is certainly his greatest weapon that he just plants in us. And then it just, it just begins to fester and grow and we reinforce it along the way. Um, um, in, in, in some ways it's kind of living out what we believe because those messages begin to form, uh, you know, I am unworthy, I am yep. inadequate, I am unlovable. And, and you know, going back and to the dog vomit, it just reinforces what we believe, and we're just going to live out what we believe. You know, I can have 
you know, Jesus in my head and uh, sing the song, Jesus loves me, um, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. But, but man, what I believe in my heart and in my gut is what I'm going to live out. And so much of what we do is just, man, we reinforce that shame message. Yeah. And shame is the enemy. Yeah. You know, and I, you know shame, our, our response to shame, of course, is to hide. I mean, we see that, you know, in that first first story of the Bible, who, you know, Adam and Eve before the fall are, the Bible makes it plain in ways that made me blush when I was a kid, when the Bible says they were naked and they were not ashamed and they were not hiding anything from each other. But as soon as sin entered the world, they began to cover up from one another. And then when God arrived for his, for their daily walk in the garden, which by the way, in the churches I was raised in, uh, would never have happened. Uh, I was told that God couldn't be around sin and that if I ever sinned, then God obviously couldn't. God could not be around me until I straightened up, until I repented, and then God could come again. Well, Adam and Eve had not repented. They'd sinned and they were hiding. And still God, this gracious, loving father who cares for us in the story, showed up for the walk. Uh, and they hid from him uh, out of shame. Oh, yeah. I, think, I think the reason, you know, that Allie and I, our marriage is so much better now is there were big, there were, you know, there was a massive part of my life that I kept hidden from her out of shame. And uh, that, <laughs> that part's not hidden anymore. So we can be close in ways we could never have been close before when I was hiding. And that's why recovery has been such an advantage. And it's made, you know, I'm closer with my kids now. Now that my kids who are grown up and it's appropriate for them to know the story. My kids know me, they know all of me. And so we can be closer. Dude, it's, you know, uh, it's that idea of freedom, right? Um, mm -hmm. When we just come clean, get honest, uh, open up, be transparent, you know, I think, I think that's, you know, why Jesus said that he came, you know, the first time he speaks in public, uh, he, he, he tells us, you know, he came, I mean, certainly he came to save us and save us from our sin. And he, mm -hmm. he did that. Uh, and, but boy, what he said was he came to set the captives free yeah. and it is our freedom and that freedom yeah. is man, getting honest, beginning to live life open and transparent and no secrets, uh, yeah. no silence and no judgment. Uh, cause those are the three things that kill relationship and, um, boy, freedom. Uh, it's like, you know, I always, every time I say that word, I want to do the brave heart scene and just start yeah. screaming freedom. Um, <laughs> Because, boy, that, that is where it's at. Nobody uh, would pay to see you in a kilt, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's just, the, I just want the long hair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you and me both, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, but, boy, um, you know, that idea, you know, uh, of course, Samson and, and, and the Pirate Monks, your book. Mm -hmm. and uh, Oh, speaking of shame, you know, dude, I, you know, that, that part in your book, that I just, I mean, you know, we just heard your story, but the, the most shameful part, uh, when you talk about farting in church, I just <laughs> like, dude, 
gosh, you put that, you put that in your book. You farted in church. <laughs> you are going to hell. I don't know if you know that or not, but anybody that farts in church, it's just, yeah, that's, that's, that, that is the ultimate sin right there. I think I've told you, you know, the, the, when I saw the book for the first time, you know, the title Samson and the Pirate Monks, I just saw that on the spine and I uh, I said, man, I don't know what that book's about, but I'm just buying the book because of the title. And of course, I picked it up and uh, it was your story and um, love the book. So Nate, I want you to uh, just talk about this idea of authentic brotherhood um, and just you know, certainly uh, the Samson Society. Um, yeah. And, you, you know, we say this all the time, you know, the, the, you said it, the cure you know, the, for what ails you uh, is connection. And uh, Ben and I talk about this often. Um, it's like we've, we've all done different kinds of men's groups and things in church, um, but it's just so hard to kind of like really break through that um, kind of, false community and like getting a guy to like come to that place of what does it really mean to to do life together in in authentic brotherhood yeah you know the picture is painted so beautifully beautifully for us you know first john 1 8 you know where it says when we walk in the light as he is light we have fellowship with one another real fellowship not this kind of, you know, towel snapping, you know, arm punching, uh, you know, sports and weather kind of macho thing that passes for a fellowship or even, you know, this pious, uh, you know, Bible verse sharing, sanctified, uh, sanitized testimony thing that sometimes passes for fellowship. But we have real fellowship with one another and it continues. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all righteousness. Um, the transformation comes in that connection because we were made to, uh, you know, as Americans, we think in highly individualized terms. And so we have a me and Jesus uh, mentality when it comes to our religion. If we have a personal relationship with Jesus, we interpret it as a private relationship with Jesus. Uh, none of that is biblical. What we're told is that as Christians, we are members of a body, that none of us is independent, that all of us are so closely connected that we can only move together. So it's only when we find a place that's safe enough to connect with other Christians, when we kind of get out of our, you know, churchianity moralism and actually be Christians for a while, not have to try to project a righteousness of our own, but trust completely in the righteousness of of another and live in grace and live in forgiveness and live in freedom um, and and drop the towel and and really uh, ask for help, be willing to give help, confess our our faults one to another and pray for one another. That's when the healing, that's when things click. That's when it starts to work like it should. The things that were uh, suspiciously absent when you told your story for me were uh, it wasn't like that one sermon that you went to one time or that one sermon that you delivered one time that fixed everything. 
you know. Uh, and we feel like that that is the medicine it feels like a lot of the American church is trying to provide sure. for these problems and problems across the board, not just sexual brokenness. But uh, we know when we have a gathering of people and a person walks up and they have their Bible in their hand, we know there's a lot of work to do uh, yep. because there's most likely that is uh, a blocker for attachment, which sounds crazy to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's usually yeah. a signal like, man, the, these people have been taught to go to the wrong, the wrong place. It's, it yeah. really is an attachment disorder. Right. Yes. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We need to be able to find a safe place to attach. You know, in, in Samson, what we really practice is non-sexual intimacy. Whether we're in a group meeting, a group setting, or whether we're in a regular conversation with uh, the guy we're closest to, and Samson, we call that guy a Silas, roughly the equivalent of a sponsor in 12-step recovery, although there's absolutely no element of authority uh, in the relationship. We're just, you know, brothers walking together. But it's there as we have this conversation and we talk, we let another guy know what we practice in Samson. Uh, certainly there's an element of accountability in any authentic relationship, but we don't talk about accountability a lot. We prefer to talk about accessibility, giving another person, at least one other person, real-time access to our life, what we're feeling, what we're thinking, what we're doing, and what we're thinking of doing. Um, And being willing to offer another person not just our strength, but our weakness, to actually live cooperatively, and to trust that Jesus is present in the relationship. Uh, you know, he did promise that when even two of us, when two or three of us are gathered in his name, he'd be there. That's his promise. Well, I grew up singing, I come to the garden alone. <laughs> <laughs> right? right? Uh, we should all practice saying that. Alone. <laughs> yeah, just me and Jesus. That's right. And yeah. a deer stand. Four, four most <laughs> dangerous words in the English language. Yeah. <laughs> I do think that what we practice in Samson, what happens in Samson, is why wives, most wives, will push their husbands out the door to go to Samson because they like what comes back because there we practice non-sexual intimacy and we come home a little more able to be transparent and honest and to talk about feelings, you know, and to actually connect without always swinging for the and making every connection sexual. So would you say, uh, just let's bring another word into the conversation here. I know we're nearing the end, but the, the level of validation that a person can receive from non-sexual intimacy, it's, it's a little hard for people to believe who are <laughs> trapped in, in just sexual brokenness or the binge purge that you described in your story to convince those people, man or woman, hey, the, the intimacy that is available that's non-sexual is incredibly validating and will feel more like medicine than the thing that's uh, giving you all this guilt and shame, you know, post-acting out. When we can separate lust from love, lust from sex, uh, you know, when sex ceases to become a performance, when it's, when it's not, you know, loves, you know, lust sees a body, love sees a person. Lust takes, love gives. Uh, When we learn non-sexual intimacy, and then can bring that level of connection into the marital bed, 
Okay, one of my greatest regrets is now knowing how much money I spent on bad sex. That's so true. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. Right? <laughs> yep, because it, it is terrible. It's order of yeah. magnitude different, yes. Yeah, you know, even I've been married, uh, we just celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary, and, um, you know, we talk about, you, you, mean, you know, our sexual relationship. Um, I mean, after, you know, 40 years of marriage and lots of practice and, and yeah. then lots of work, um, you know, it is, uh, you know, we're, we're at that place where it's like, man, it just, that part of our relationship just keeps getting better and better. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm 60 years old, you know, yeah. everybody thinks that it's like, well, you know, you get, you get older and you know, that just dies off or something. No, when, when we're really living uh, emotionally connected um, in, in true intimacy, uh, man, that's where the good stuff is. And, yeah. um, and, you know, I, we talk about that uh, openly when going to details, that would be creepy, but, but, you know, where do young couples hear that message? Yeah. Um, they certainly aren't going to hear it in our culture. Um, they're, they're not going to hear it uh, in church. Uh, you, you're not going to hear it anywhere. Uh, but it is something that needs to be spoken because um, it is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the created design of how all this works. Mm-hmm. And, man, yeah. there's just nothing greater and nothing better. Um, yeah. But, it, you know, it. It, 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 it's not easy. Uh, it's not hard. Uh, it takes two willing people in order for that to happen. Uh, but boy, when, when it does happen, it, it's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So man, we, um, we're kind of getting to the end of our time and, um, just, uh, can't thank you enough for just being on the, being on the podcast and, um, and certainly, um, kind of doing life together. Um, if if people want to know more about the Sampson Society, uh, what would be the best way for them to uh, to get in contact? Um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, we've got uh, local meetings. More than five hundred local meetings of the Sampson Society have started since two thousand four. But we also have uh, online meetings. Our goal is to have at least one of those meetings every hour of every day. Uh, and Samson has gone global now. There are already meetings in six languages. Uh, but you can you can uh, but you can't get into a, lo- a a virtual meeting until you've had an orientation and we've had a chance to meet you and uh, verified that you're there for your own recovery. You can sign up for a newcomer meeting. There's one every day at samsonsociety.org. That's Samson without a P, S-A-M-S-O-N, samsonsociety.org. And uh, you can uh, meet brothers. You know, (laughs) I expected, by the way, when we started the online meetings, that the quality of those friendships would never match the friendships in local meetings. I couldn't have been more wrong. It astonishes me now to see how close guys get who meet regularly, even if they don't meet, uh, you know, live in the same city or the same state or even the same country. And, uh, you know, at our annual uh, national retreat, the best part of the retreat for me is watching guys hug their best friend for the first time. 
by the way, National Retreat, Roan, I am so excited, and we all are so pleased that you and Ro and Eva are going to be the main presenters at our fall retreat this year, the first weekend in November in Eva, Tennessee. Uh, uh, <laughs> Man, we're, we're, we're looking forward to it. Uh, I think I told you, this, this will be the first time that, I mean, you know, Eva and I have done uh, those types of things together, and Ro and I have done those together, but this will be the first time that all three of us have done uh, this this together, and I think it's just going to be a pretty interesting uh, time because, um, you know, you're going to get a perspective of the one that has uh, walked the path of sexual brokenness. That would be me. Uh, and you get the perspective of a, of a partner of sexual brokenness. And then you're going to get the perspective of, of a child uh, of sexual brokenness. We, uh, we're certainly looking forward to being at the retreat uh, with you guys. Um, man, it is, um, it's just, you know, we've done some work with some of the Samson guys. And with those guys, um, you can tell, you know, they, they are, they, because of the group work, just the brotherhood and, and the sharing, man, they, they are, um, they they all dive into the deep end of the pool. Oh, that's um, good. Oh, yeah. And so, man, it was uh, so appreciate you taking the time and being on with us uh, this morning. Um, uh, just always love hanging out with you. And um, uh, just I've been I've been telling guys here uh, that you're just you're one of us. And <laughs> uh, so so glad that uh, we we do life together, man. Thank oh. you. Well, it's my pleasure. So good uh, to spend this time with you, uh, with you and Ben. Uh, uh, and thank you for the podcast. Thank you for putting all the work into this. Uh, we're out there saving lives, saving marriages, and bringing hope to a world that desperately needs it. To learn more about what you've heard today and to engage with the Sex, God, and Chaos team, visit sexgodchaos.com.